Hi, thanks for joining us again as we study the book of Numbers in our series, The Wilderness Wanderings. We're in Numbers chapter 30 for this lesson. Numbers chapter 30. There's a new TV show that's out, uh, and it's called uh, WandaVision. And it's a, one that my family, we enjoyed watching, and it was interesting. Uh, it's from the Marvel Universe, all the superheroes and everything. And so we've enjoyed watching it. And in this uh, show, what was interesting about it was that uh, you only ever saw what this lady Wanda wanted you to see. At least that was the initial premises. You, you wouldn't, you would get perspective, and it wasn't through her eyes, but only what you would see on TV was what she wanted you to see. And it was as if she was shaping and giving you and feeding you the information that you needed to hear that she wanted you to see in order to uh, view her reality in the way that she wanted you to view it. And what it ended up doing from her perspective and from her stereotypes, it gave you this false sense of what was real. In fact, they started off in like the 50s and they moved progressively through each decade. They started with like the Dick Van Dyke show spoofing that. It was a lot of fun. We enjoyed it. But it really did give you a false perspective of reality. And I'm afraid that at times in our Bible studies, we do the same thing when it comes to the Bible culture and the ancient Near Eastern culture. Sometimes you'll see us put, uh, pastor does it often, where I'll put A-N-E. It stands for ancient Near East. The culture of the world of the Bible. And sometimes when we look at that culture, we just instantly assume that the culture in the world is the exact same as the culture in Israel. We assume because something was commonplace in the Bible times that it meant that it was commonplace with the nation of Israel. And that's not always the case. In fact, if you remember your Bible study, Israel was called to live differently than the other nations that were around them. They were also given a set of laws by God that many times contradicted how things were being done in the world around them. So they were told to worship differently. They were told to treat each other differently. They were told what types of food to eat differently. There were all these different requirements that God said, you're not going to do everything like is done in the ancient Near East. You are to live the way that I am calling you to live. And that happens especially, I believe, when we look at the concept of women's rights. When we look at the feminist perspective in the world and how, it's, it treats, how it treats the Word of God. It talks about, people will talk about the status of women in the Bible and the, the treatment of women was just obscene and gross and how could we trust the Bible because of the way they treated women. I think we need to take a step back for a moment and look and say, wait, what does the Bible say about that as opposed to what was happening maybe in the culture during that time? Feminists would have us to believe that women in the Bible had no rights and were treated poorly. But that may have been the case in some of the surrounding cultures of Israel historically. And in fact, even to be fair, the women, women in the Bible did not have all the exact same rights that women today have. Let's be honest, women a hundred years ago didn't have the exact, in America didn't have the exact same rights that women today have. That's part of, part of the movement with the feminism. But to look back and to say, well, because of that, we're just going to, you know, get rid of all of American culture. We don't, we don't do that. 
We don't do the same with the Word of God. Just because some things were different than what they are today doesn't mean we instantly just wipe out, eradicate, or cancel all that is in, in the Word of God in relationship to men, women, to their relationships to one another. In fact, it's important to look at the Word of God and understand what did the Bible talk about? What did the Bible say was done in the camp of Israel? When we, look at, when we look at ladies during the Bible times, especially during the Old Testament and even into the New, obviously, they had the ability to inherit land. We saw that in Numbers chapter 27. They could own land. They could buy. They could sell. They could operate a business. They could negotiate contracts. They could make vows and pledges and oaths, and they were all legitimate. That's actually further along. What was allowed in the Old Testament for ladies to do? was actually further along than what was allowed in, in many nations around the world 100 years ago, even in America, and even in some nations today. So we can't rewrite history and look with a different perspective because we have a new agenda or somebody has a new feminist agenda and just eradicate the Word of God. The Bible held the ladies in very high regard and afforded them. God afforded them many opportunities for them to thrive and to live in the communities and in the cultures that they lived in. So as we enter into Numbers 30, we need to go into this passage and put our prescriptions, our prescription lenses that we like to see things through. We need to check them at the door. We also need to put our pride at the door as well. You may be listening and saying, I don't want to hear anything about about what the Bible says about ladies, about husbands, about wives. I don't want to hear any of that. I just want to do what I want. We need to check our pride at the door. We need to check our presuppositions at the door and say, wait, what does God's word say? And how does that apply to our lives today? So as we go into Numbers 30, look at what happens in verse 1. Verse 1 says that Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning, uh, concerning the children of Israel, saying, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. So Moses is going to share with them the commands of the Lord. Now, so that's important to understand. These concepts that will flow out of chapter 30 are from God. The thoughts and the concepts originate with God himself, not with Moses, not with man, not with some misogynistic person who just wanted to beat down women. It originated, these thoughts, these concepts originated with God himself. What is he saying? The whole basis, the whole premises of chapter 30, I can give it to you in three words. It's keep your word. That is the, the foundation that everything else in chapter 30 is all about. That's the chapter in a nutshell. And I don't know if you remember, maybe you did this, I did as a kid, you know, we would have all these things like cross my heart and hope to die. And that would really say that, oh, what I'm saying I really meant. Or if we'd cross our fingers behind our backs when we were saying something, it meant that we really didn't mean what we would say. Or we would pinky promise with somebody to say, hey, I, this is my bond and you can trust what I'm saying. And we grow up with those little concepts, those little things as kids that really start to formulate that I don't always have to mean what I say and I don't always have to say what I mean. And, and all those things start changing and they, they grow into who we become as adults. And yet God says, let your word be your bond. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. We live in a culture which faithfulness to fulfill our words, what we have promised is really in short supply. We will spin it. We will go around. We will change. Oh, I, I forgot. I didn't mean to say that. And, and we, we excuse 
our lack of commitment to our word. So when we look at God's perspective, God's people are to be people of their word, even if it's costly to them. If they make a promise, if they make an oath, if they have to take a Nazarite, if they take, choose to take a Nazarite vow, when they finish, they have to do all those sacrifices that we talked about earlier in the book of Numbers. There's a lot that is accomplished and sometimes it's costly, but it is about keeping our word. Whatever we commit ourselves to do before man or before the Lord, we need to do. That ought to be a hallmark of who we are. Because think about it. When we do not follow through on our commitments or when we follow through our commitments, who are we acting like? Are we acting like the author of faithfulness, the author of truth, God? God is the one who represents truth. God is the one who represents faithfulness. Or are we people who are lying, deceitful? And who's the father of that? Satan. So who do we represent when how we keep our word and our promises and our oaths and our vows as the chapter is going to, to talk about? God is concerned about your faithfulness and my faithfulness. Now, when we talk about vows and oaths, often Matthew 5 will come up where God, Jesus, as he's talking in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about the idea of don't, don't swear by heaven or don't swear by the earth or don't swear by your head. Don't swear by any of that. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So God says, don't ever make vows. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you make a vow, keep a vow. But what he's, what he's driving at is that your word is to be yes and your word is to be no and you are to follow through. Christ is saying that you should not have to make promises because everybody knows you're a person who keeps your word. And so don't, don't look and say, well, we're never supposed to make promises or vows and, and get all pious and righteous on it. Christ is saying, just let your word be your bond. If you say you're going to do something, then do it. Follow through. We're to be people who keep our word. So Numbers 30 is going to deal with vows and oaths and, and uh, bonds that, that the people are going to make by Israel. These could entail a number of things. A vow is a verbal act of consecration of oneself or one's property to God. It could be, as far as relationship to God, it could be dedicating something or someone to God. It could be decisions to offer sacrifices from your herds to God. It could be a choice of self-denial. You're gonna consecrate your body and you're gonna give up food and you're gonna fast or you're gonna give up sex and the intimate relationship because that is a sacred thing that God says is special to him. If you're gonna give that up, you could give up sleep, etc. So there are those moments of self-denial that may come in. The, a vow could be a commitment uh, to do some act of service to God for a short time, for a longer time, but it's a commitment. It could be granting ownership unconditionally to God, which Hannah did with Samuel, gives, gives her son completely holy to God. It could be the idea of an oath in the passage where it's a pledge or a promise to a person where you pledge to do something, you, you pl- promise to give them something, you're planning to help in a certain way, and you say, I'm going to go do this for you. Then we follow through on that. So it's, a, it's an oath, and those are binding. They, they create a bond between the person when we make an oath or when we make a vow to God, it makes that there. Now, God takes vows seriously. Do you remember Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, where it talks about if you're going to make a vow, then you make sure that you pay it quickly, that you do what you say, say you're going to do, because it is better that you not vow than it is to vow and to not pay. When it talks about vows here, notice a vow is voluntary. You are not required to make that pledge. You're not required to make that vow. But when you do voluntarily make the vow, then it becomes obligatory. You are obliged to carry it out. 
So take that concept, those concepts into Numbers 30. When a vow is made, it's voluntary, but it is obligatory. They must follow through on what they make a vow and a promise to the Lord or to other people. So we, we walk into chapter, chapter 30, verse number two, and you're going to instantly see the example that is set. Now, the example that is set, it says, it talks about vows and oaths that were binding for all members of the community, both male and female. That's the standard. That is what God expects. He doesn't look and say, well, one or the other doesn't have to keep their word. God says, I expect you to keep your vows. I expect you to keep your promises, your oaths. Verse two says, if a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swears an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So the example that is set, the standard that is set is that it is to be a person, this man is to be a person who keeps his word. So God begins with the men. They are to be men who keep their word. They are to be men of integrity. So as, as Moses looks and says, what does God expect of you men? Expects you to be people who are always following through on your word. Men of integrity. Men who are trustworthy. Men who are reliable. They, the husbands, the fathers, they reflect the image of God to their family. And dads, we do the same. Husbands, we do the same. We must be men of integrity, of faithfulness to our word, of reliability with our word. We must be trustworthy with what we say that our family, that our children, that our wife, our wife, plural, not wives, plural, our wife, our, our, that our wives know that uh, we are going to keep our word. The family's view of God, this is so important. The family's view of God and their trust in God begins with trust in dad, trust in their husband. So Moses starts off, God, God starts out and says, men, if you vow, keep your word. Follow through, be trustworthy, be faithful. And then in the next, most of the chapter, in fact, chapter verses three through 15, God is going to give some exceptions to the standard. The standard is man, woman, you make a vow, you keep the vow. Keep your word. But there are a couple exceptions, God says. And he does it with, with good purpose, as God always does. He says that the assumption is like all Israel, that your word is binding. Vows were not binding, uh, were not less binding for ladies because the Bible sees women as inferior. That's important. He's not going to look and say, well, the ladies, because they really don't know what they're doing. They're, they're somehow rationally inferior or they need protection from themselves because they're just going to make these foolish decisions, which I'm sure at times has probably sadly been preached or taught. But that's not what the scriptures teach. It doesn't teach that women are inferior mentally. It doesn't mean that they're irrational. Ladies were free to make vows, it says. They were free to make oaths. They were free to make pledges. And God does not look at them and say, whatever, you don't know what you're talking about. So let's not, let's not jump on this idea that, that men are so much more mentally and rationally superior and that women are inferior. So God has to give an entire chapter in chapter 30 to, to fix the problems that the women are causing by making these commitments. That's not what this chapter is about at all. However, God is going to grant some veto power on some of these vows to the husband and the father. He is going to allow the husband to say, there are times that you are going to be allowed to 
veto the vow of, of, certain, of certain women. Not of all women. I don't have the right to do that. The, the husband does not have that right to veto all the power of all women or all the choices. That's not what this passage is about. There's specifics to where this passage is going. The reasons for these vetoing powers, there, there's numbers that could come up, but some that came up consistently through the, through the reading that I did. Uh, financial impact on the family. A vow is made all of a sudden by maybe one of the young ladies in the family to, we're going we're gonna to give a sheep to, I want to give a sheep to the Lord every week for the next three, three months. And dad's looking and saying, wait, we only have 10 sheep in the flock. And you've just committed to the Lord, you know, 14, 12, 14 sheep. We can't, how are we going to do that? It's going to have financial impact. It could be relational impact upon the couple. If the, if the wife chooses to say, Lord, I'm going to abstain from sexual intercourse with my husband for a set period of time to fast from that for you, but she never consults the husband, that can cause some, some tension in the marriage. In fact, Paul comes back to that in 1 Corinthians 7 and says, you don't, you don't defraud yourself from one another. You don't withhold yourself from one another unless there is consent between each other. And he says that that is a very spiritual and, and blessed time for you to give up that intimacy to spend intimate time with God. It could be a decision made in duress. The husband's away at war or things are getting desperate and the wife just feels she has no other choice. And then when the husband hears it, he's like, no, we can do this, this, let's, and that option is given to them. There's the potential of maybe she does make a, a decision that's detrimental to herself in a, in a moment of, of just angst. She makes a, a, an extreme decision. Like even in the case of Hannah, what, to, to say I'm gonna give up my firstborn could that be psychologically potentially detrimental to her? Possibly. And so Elkanah actually in 1 Samuel 1 says that, he says, whatever seems good to you to do in the whole, the whole process of what's happening. So he allows her to make that vow and the commitments that she's made and to uphold them. So there are opportunities for the husband or the father to veto the vow, but that's not necessarily always the norm that he's going to, to do that. And God does this. One of, the, one of the writers in the New American Commentary series said this. God understood that the binding nature of vows could cause tension to arise when a dependent woman binds themselves by obligation to God, which may then cause conflict with their father's or their husband's will to whom they are dependent. And so what happens when that conflict arises? How do they reconcile it? Does it just look, the wife says, nope, this is my spiritual thing to God. You have no say because God trumps you. Is that, is that what happens? You can't tell me what I'm going to do because this is my service to God. So husband, butt out. Is that, is that what God is going to allow and God says to happen here? That's where some of these exceptions start coming into play. God is going to grant the leader, the, the husband or the father, three courses of action to take that you can see as you read through the passage. The first, the first course of action is that they say nothing. That they, when they say nothing, they affirm the vow. So in verse number three, it says, if a woman vows a vow unto the Lord and bind herself by a bound, being in her father's house in her youth, so this is talking about a daughter, and her father hears the vow and her bond, which she has bound her soul, and the father should hold his peace at her, he doesn't say anything, then her vow shall stand. And every, every bond wherewith she has bound herself shall stand. But if the father disallow the vow in the day that he hears it, not any of her vows nor of her bonds shall be able to stand. They'll be vetoed out. So they can affirm the vow by silence. 
they can negate the vow and say, no, you cannot keep this vow. As the head of the household, I'm saying that you're not able to do this. Or they can confirm the vow, which, which comes up later, where he actually, uh, verse 13, where it talks about her husband may establish it, or he will say, yes, I agree, this is a vow for you that you may keep. So those are the only three options that are given by God to the husband or to the father in this situation. And I like what happens here. God is providing structure and order for the family to thrive. He's saying, this is what you're going to need. This is what you, how you need to operate in order to work through some of these delicate and difficult situations. So God creates structure and order for the family. Now, the first exemption that comes up in verse three, the one we just read, is for the unmarried daughter in verses three to five. The daughter makes a binding vow while living in her father's house, but before the father can make any decisions concerning this vow, something has to happen. So, you know, so little, little Joanna goes and, you know, maybe not little, she might be like 16, 17, and, and makes a commitment to the Lord to, to give those, those sheep away and sacrifice to him. And the father has to look and say, wait, is this doable? Is this not doable? Is this something that I allow my daughter to do or not to do? Was this a, a, an unwise decision? Was this rash? But before he can make that decision, he can't just go and say, what, Joanna made a, a decision to give away some of the sheep to God? No. He must hear. Notice verse five or four. The father, her father, hear her vow and her bond with which she has bound her soul. He is required to first listen to what she has committed to. It's not a rash fly off the handle. This is stupid. You shouldn't have done that. It is sitting down with the daughter. It is listening. And it is listening to the bond, the sincerity of her vow. What is the bond wherewith you bound yourself? How, how strong, how serious are you about this, daughter, that you're going to do this? And is it possible? So he, he has to hear, and that happens in each of those, far different than the cultural norm of the world where it was just like the, the husband didn't even have to answer to the wife, didn't even have to listen to the daughter. This gave some basis, some grounding, some footing to explain and to communicate back and forth because communication is necessary for a family to thrive. We can't just shut down as fathers and say, I never want to talk to my kids. I don't want to talk to my wife. We need to have communication and hear their thoughts, hear what they're struggling with, hear what they're wanting to do in their, in their relationship with the Lord. So what does he do? The father must make a decision. <clears throat> and the day that the father hears it, now you're going to hear that. It's going to come up in verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, I believe. Yeah, verse 8 and verse 12, that those will come up. In the day that he hears it, the father must make a decision. The father is either going to say no or yes. So if he decides not to, he says, you may not keep that vow, Joanna. We don't have enough sheep in order for you to give all the vows that you, uh, all the sheep that you've committed to the Lord. What does it say? It says at the end of verse five, and the Lord shall forgive her because her father disallowed it. Because he said, this is not something that you are going to be able to do. So as the head of the household, he establishes that God removes the punishment because it was the intent of the daughter to fulfill the vow, but she has been prevented by the father to do so. And there's no animosity by God toward the father or toward the daughter. He's just looking and saying, I will allow that. Really interesting. Really interesting when you see that what happens here is God 
recognizes the authority of the father in the family. What does God, when a vow is made to God, he now has the right to expect you to fulfill that vow because it is obligatory. And if you don't, there were consequences. And yet God looks and says, because the authority in the home has disallowed this, I will forgive you of any debt, any payment, any uh, wrath that was to come out of this. I will forgive you and not hold it against you or against the husband or the father either. Because God recognizes the authority of the father in the home. That's, that's very vital to understand because it's going to come up in a couple more times here. Then he gives the second exception. The second exception flows right out of that. Look how, look how it flows. Verse 6. And if she had at all a husband, when she vowed, you're like, what is, what is going on here? The King James does not help us with that phrase. Basically, that phrase means when she vowed, she wasn't married. So verse 6 is talking about now this, this unmarried woman makes a vow, but now she's married, and the vow that she made is not complete. So what happens? Does she have to continue that vow? Does she, she have to pay it? The vow uttered, uh, the vowed and uttered aught of her lips. That's another one. Look down in verse uh, 6. It says, when she vowed or uttered aught out of her lips. It's a really interesting word for vowed here. It's not the, the, the normal one that's used. It has the idea of a rash or immature vow. Now, again, it's not going back to, oh, she's just a fool and doesn't know what she's doing. What it is here is the vow that was made before the new family is established. So Joanna vows the 15 sheep, or the, let's say 12 sheep. We'll keep it 12 because that'll be an easy number for me to remember. She vows those 12 sheep, and the father said when she was unmarried, yes. We can afford that. You can do that. We will continue on. So now Joanna is keeping that. But in the process of time, she's going to be betrothed and she's going to get married. And the new husband looks at Joanna and says, wait, I have two sheep to my name. And you can't take your father. How are we going to continue this? We can't do it. What does she do? How does she go forward with her vow to the Lord? What happens? So to this new bride... And the new groom, the Lord gives the opportunity to, to deal with it here. Verse 7. And the husband heard it and held his peace at her. And all the days he heard it, uh, that he heard it, then his vow, her vow shall stand. And her bond wherewith she bound shall stand. But if when the husband hears it on that day and disallows it, then she shall uh, make her vows to be, to be none effect. They're going to be gone. And the Lord shall forgive her. It's an interesting case in what happens here. If it's disallowed, the, the Lord is going to unforgive this. What happens here is God is recognizing the transfer of headship in the family. Because before Joanna was married, back here, she was under the headship, the ruler, the authority of her father. Now when she goes to get married, her headship is now her husband. And now she might have been able to keep the vow, but now her husband says, no, you cannot keep the vow. What does God say? God says, you accept the leadership, the, the headship of your husband, and it is disallowed. It, you are no longer under the bondage of that vow. 
it is allowed to be of none effect. So God recognizes here in this passage not only the, the headship of the Father and the authority of the Father, but then, like we do in, in the wedding ceremonies, who gives this woman to be married to this man, her mother and I. And the Father gives, and, and there's this transferring of authority that occurs in the transferring of headship that she no longer is to be dependent upon father, but now she's dependent upon her new husband. And God is recognizing that new headship that is in her life. A beautiful picture of what is happening there. Then verse nine comes about. Verse nine is the exception to the exception because every exception has an exception. Well, the exception to the exception basically puts verse nine under the category of every other single person in Israel. As we mentioned, everyone was expected to keep their words. The last section we talked about, somebody was newly married, that's verses six through eight. And in the next section, starting in verse 10, we're gonna talk about somebody who's been married for a while. And right in the middle of verse nine, it's going to speak to those who are maybe older and not married or younger and not married? Could it be a single individual, single lady who's living not in dad's house? Because there's that qualifier in verse three, while they're in dad's house. Verse 16, it comes again in, while they're in their youth, in their father's house. And, and we see that in our culture, that happens more today than it happened in Bible culture, where, where a young lady will be single and not living under her father's roof and not married. And so therefore she is her own authority in that home. That didn't happen as much during Bible times because it was much more difficult, but it did happen. We know that it's going to happen with the daughters of Zalafahad until later on when we find out they're going to eventually get married. But what about someone who is a widow, someone who is a divorcee? Notice, notice what, God, what God does here. God doesn't, and I love the fact that sometimes we, we look at people who have been divorced, you know, God doesn't approve divorce, but there's a reality that there are people who are divorced. And what does God say? He, he still talks and addresses their issues. He doesn't treat them like a second-class second believer. But he addresses verse 9. He says, But every vow of a widow and of her that is divorced, wherewith they have bound their souls, shall stand against her. In other words, the ladies who are widowed, the ladies who are divorced, they are not all of a sudden brought back and placed under dad's authority. They're not under some other man's authority. They, their word is their bond. They can buy, they can sell, they can create their own business. They can do what they need to do. Many times they would go back to live with dad or brothers or, or relatives would take care of them, but they did have the authority granted to them by God to be able to still work and to, to, to serve and to make a living in, in Israel at that time. What does the vow say? Uh, what does God say about their vows? If they make them, they're bound to them. The word of a single lady is binding and legitimate as a man's word. How is that, how is that in any way, shape, or form anti-women's rights? Man, that just, again, elevates in a culture that didn't elevate that. God is elevating even single women to a position of they have a binding word. They, their word is their bond, and it is good. And they can make these contracts and these oaths. Their word is to have full respect, he's saying. They're there to take full responsibility, though, for their word. If they make the commitment, they follow through. God recognizes the equality of men and women in life. There's no way around that. You cannot put on a false set of glasses and say God doesn't, God doesn't see men and women. God sees women as lesser and men as more. God, God doesn't do that. You don't see that in this passage. The third exemption that comes up 
is for the, the married woman. So much of what has been said is similar in this passage. If you read through verses 10 through 12, you're going to see very similar. She makes a vow. She's been married. She makes a vow to the Lord. And when the husband hears it, then he has to make a decision. But there's two main differences in this, in this passage when we look at it. The first one is dealing in verse number 13. Vows that afflict the soul. Every vow and every binding oath that afflict to, to afflict the soul, her husband may establish it or her husband may make it void. In other words, these ones that afflict the soul, the husband needs to be involved in the decision. He, she needs to get approval or disapproval in this. These are vows of self-denial. For example, Hannah did it again in 1 Samuel. She's going to deny herself her son, going to consecrate that son to the Lord. They could also be fasting. They could be celibacy. They could be the Nazarite vow. All of those things are going to have impact upon the husband and upon the financial being of the family and upon the, the interpersonal relationship of husband and wife. And so there was a, re, a, a fact here where God says, go to your husband and, do, and discuss because these are some weightier vows. And so have those conversations. Communicate with each other. Don't just go do something and say, well, this is, this is my service to God. I've chosen to do this. Uh, they must be ratified by the husband because these impact the relationship. And we can never say, and ladies, you can't say, and, and guys, even the same, I'm pursuing God, so therefore I can, I can subvert God's order. I can subvert what God says in communication with the family as a submission to each other, as a respect out of one another. So I'm not even going to consult my spouse, but I'm going to give $100,000 a sacrificial Sunday without, without him even knowing it because that's, I want to give it to God. And God says, no, you, those are big self-denying vows. You talk it over. You communicate it and have, the, have that mutual respect, but then the husband makes that final decision in the home for that. He goes on, the other one that comes up, the other difference, what happens if down the road the husband changes his mind? Then we know that will never happen, right? Where, where my wife will make a decision and I'll be okay with it, whatever. And a few days later, I'm like, what, are you, what were you thinking? Why did you do that? Or sometimes you'll hear situations where, fine, you want to do that? You live with the consequences. And, and the husband says nothing and lets it play out for a little bit, but then comes in and says, all right, no, we're not going to do this. And what does God say about letting it sort of just roll? God has already said, if you're silent on the day that you hear it, you are affirming the vow. So in this case, when we look to verse 14, if her husband altogether holds his peace as it were from day to day, then he has established all her vows, all of her bonds that are upon her. He confirms them because he held his peace in the day that he heard it. God is constantly driving the men to make decisions, to have to formulate and to make decisions, not to be passive in their decision-making, but he's saying, no, you think through it and you lead in the home. You establish authority. You make decisions with your wife. You talk to her, but you make that decision. What happens, though, if days go by? And then he decides, no, we're not going to do that. He's been silent. He hasn't talked about it, or he maybe even affirmed it. What, is, what does God say happens in verse, verse number 15? So she's no longer responsible is what's going to happen. Notice verse 15. But if he shall in any way make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear their iniquity. 
that God now says, if you come back and change your mind, if you become fickle about this, if you decide, no, I don't like it, and you adjust it, then you're still responsible. You're responsible for finishing out the debt, or you're responsible, husband, for, for the, the, the vows that have been made. God demands responsibility of the husband. This is, these verses right there push the husband to say, make decisions, be the leader, be responsible. And if you aren't, and then later on you try to be, you're still on the hook. So in other words, be communicative, talk, establish authority, but be respectful. Do leadership the way God intended leadership to be done. Show responsibility in the home. So God drives and demands them to make decisions, not to be passive, not to be the whipped little boy, but to be the man of the home and to make godly decisions that, that are, are their responsibility. And then verse 16 gives us the end. The end is very, very, very cool. These are the statutes with the Lord, which the Lord commanded to Moses between a man and his wife, between the father and his daughter, being yet in her youth, in her father's house. Notice all those qualifiers that are there. What does God say here? It's often said that man just made up the concept of submission. That it was just there so he could keep his authority and his power. But notice, God is the one who established this. He established it earlier back in Genesis, and he brings it to light here again in Numbers. He calls them statutes. These are non-optional expectations between a husband and a wife. These are non-optional expectations between a father and his daughter. It is in the home. It is not everywhere across Israel. It is not that I can walk in here and tell any woman that comes into our church, this is what I expect you to do and you must do. No, it is not my position as, as a man to do that. God is saying while they're in their father's house, while they're under his authority, while they are following his headship, if they're not, if, they're, if they've been divorced or if they're widowed, he says their word, the lady's word is their bond. He highlights the, the, the word of the single woman and says that it is, it is qualified. He doesn't dismiss women. He highlights and lifts them up. What is, this is not saying all men over all women. It's not what it says, and don't read into that. And if you say that from this passage, you're dead wrong. Okay, and what you're doing is you're hurting the testimony of God. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the passage teaches. It doesn't even say that dad always has his right over his daughter. There's going to come a day when I will no longer have the authority over Dylan. I'm going to have to, I will transfer that headship from me to some other man. And then they will be responsible for her, not me. That, that day will come. God is the one who established the home and the authority structure. This is not a male-driven agenda as a feminist would have you believe. They're trying to rewrite biblical culture. We must understand what the scriptures say, especially in a passage like this, where it really looks like 
man, it just takes away when we revert 100 years of women's rights. No, this passage is about the responsibility of all people to keep their word and the responsibility of husbands and fathers to do their due diligence and to live the way that God wants because we need men in the home fulfilling their responsibilities because we are suffering a crisis in our culture of fatherless parenting. Even if you're present, are you present? So what is the quick summary? As I, as I look through the passage, God is concerned with our faithfulness. God established order in the home. God's desire for men, that we make submission easy by being a faithful man of integrity. Remember, leadership is not harsh and domineering authority. It is not equally sharing leadership or passing the buck and saying, well, I'll just let my wife make all the decisions because she wants to make them anyway. No, I have a responsibility to be the leader in my home. It is not inferring that your wife is of lesser importance. You are a fool if you don't consult your wife. You need to go and find out her, her thoughts, her opinions. Listen to her, communicate. Take time each day to sit down with just your wife and to talk. It is not, leadership is not meaning that you always get your wishes because I am man and I get what I want. There are some times that I have to give up what I would like for the betterment, for the love, for the respect, for the mutual admiration for my wife and for my kids that I give that up. And this is so important, men. Leadership in the home, in the family, leadership is a statute of God. Therefore, it is not optional. You must, I must fulfill my biblical role of leadership in the home. That is my priority. That is your priority. If you want a wife who respects your word, then you must be a man who keeps his word. That's why it starts in verse two, the basis and the premise of the entire chapter. If a man makes a vow, if he says he's gonna do something, then do it. I'll do the honey-do list. Yeah, yeah, dear, maybe in a year. If I say I'm gonna do it, do it. She will respect you more for that. When we look at it, the faithfulness, the establishment, what does God say for the ladies? Submission is a call for you to lay down something that is rightfully yours. Think about it. In the passage, it even highlights the single woman has the authority to make a vow. And yet, there is a point with authority and headship in the home that that may have to be relinquished. That right. And submission is God's call for you to lay down something that is rightfully yours. It is truly the highest statement of, of trust known to man. When you look to your husband and say, or you look to dad and say, I will submit because I trust your leadership. I trust your direction. I trust that your word is your bond and that it will happen. I respect you and I believe you and you and your decisions. It really is the love language of every man. To hear that from his wife, to hear that from his daughter, it bolsters the confidence to lead. But when you're constantly being torn down and told how stupid you are and you can't make good decisions, it doesn't inspire leadership. So this is a mutual respect that goes both ways. Submission is that inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of your husband or father. It's giving up your will for God's will. Not saying that's easy, and yet that's what God calls the daughter. It's what God calls the wife to do. 
That is God's statutes. If you want a man who keeps his word, be a wife or a daughter who respects his word. Again, it goes hand in hand together. When we talk about submission, it's not putting your husband in the place of Christ. Christ is to have the preeminence. It is not giving up independent thought. You should still express your opinions and your thoughts. You should still have those conversations. It's not giving up your efforts to influence or guide your husband in your home. It's not being a doormat. It's, based upon, it's not based upon a lesser intelligence as we've talked about already. It's not inconsistent with equality. It's not. In fact, Christ himself submitted submitted to his earthly parents. He submitted to his heavenly father. We as all believers are called to submit. We're called to submit to Christ. We're still called to submit to the church. We are called to submit to the authorities and the government. And yet we're all equal. It's just in different roles, in different relationships, there are different forms of submission. And this is a biblical form that God has established that ladies are to submit to the male authority that is in their family relationship. Again, not outside, not every man. That's not what the scriptures say. And the third thing I get when I walk away from here, God is more concerned about our responsibilities than he is our rights. It happens every single time in those cases that occur. That God says, I will forgive. The Lord will forgive when it is disallowed. What happens here is God waives his own right to be given his vows. He waives the right that is obliged to him that teaches us that we not always need to insist on our rights. Might be what I want, but it might not be what God expects of me. We need to, we need to look and say, am I more worried about my rights than I am my responsibility at home? to be the father, to be the husband, to be the wife that I need to be, to be the child that God calls me to be, to be the, the widow or the single, the single lady who makes commitments and I'm supposed to keep my word. What's interesting to me is when you look at this chapter, which seems initially out of place, but I, I think God strategically, beautifully places chapters 28, 29, and 30 right where they're at. Think about it. The census has just occurred back in 27. God is saying, we're about to go. We're going to go to the promised land. And when you're in the promised land, there's going to be all this stuff that's going to happen. There's going to be wars, but you're going to settle in. And how do you want to thrive as a nation? How does the nation be, how can it be strengthened? How can it be prosperous? He says in 20, 28 and 29, keep me at the center. That's been the last two lessons. Keep me at the center of your weeks and your days and your months and your year. Keep me involved in your life, in your family life. And the second one in this passage, you need to focus on the family. That we need to look and say, what is our responsibility in the home and making decisions with God and making decisions in our home? And especially, especially, even though it seems like the passage drives against with, uh, in regard to the ladies, men, there's a lot here for us because there's a lot of weight and responsibility that goes with us making decisions that may cause some, some disgruntledness in the home. That may look and say, well, I'm going to be the heavy, but I need to make those wise and godly decisions. So what does God say to do? That we as fathers are to take responsibility in the home. 
We as husbands are to take responsibility in the relationship. We are to drive toward godliness. We are to drive toward spirituality. We are the ones who are supposed to be getting the kids up and saying, hey, it's time to go to church. We are to be the impetus in that. We desperately need in our culture fathers and husbands who are going to live responsibly according to God's word. You look at our nation and you wonder if that's what it's gonna take to be prosperous. You wonder why we're struggling. We're not, we don't keep God at the center in our nation. And the fatherless rate. Kids who are growing up without dad. It's tremendous. We need, we desperately need fathers who will take responsibility who'll be the men that God called us to be. So as we look at this passage, the family, God has established the structure. God has established the order. God has established the authority. God has established the, uh, uh, the headship. God has established the necessity of communication. God has established the home. Let's make our homes ones that honor and focus on God. Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that. God, help me. Help me to be a man of my word. Help me to be a man of integrity. It's difficult at times to say things, but to follow through. So Lord, help me to do that too. Help us all to live with the great responsibility of being the man, the woman, the God you've called us to be. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day.